Hello, and welcome to another episode of Cracking Addiction with Philippe and Naren and Fergal Armstrong. This episode follows on from our two previous episodes, and in the episode of Cracking Addiction today, we're going to be talking about some of the social harms and social comorbidities associated with substance use disorder. So, Fergal, we could talk for hours, I guess, on on the social harms related to substance use disorders, but let's just start off with some of the, the bigger ones. Unemployment. Unemployment obviously has harms in the sense of lack of engagement with society and and decreased funds. But I guess mm. there's a lot more to unemployment than just the two things that I've mentioned. How does unemployment affect someone with substance use disorder in general? Well, first of all, you, you've got to see it as a symptom of substance use disorder. So remember, let's go back to the diagnostic criteria. One of the diagnostic criteria is the inability to fulfill role obligations. And so the inability to meet your obligations as an employee or as a subcontractor or as a business person, that's that's a key hallmark of substance use disorder. And when we look at the entire range of substance use disorder criteria, we've got the physiological, we've got the loss of control, and this, but this progression from a life of function to a life of chaos and the disconnect from other people characterized by that inability to meet role obligations, I think is one of the key differences between, you know, dabbling and actually, you know, frank substance use disorder. There's descent into chaos and the loss of our identity, including employment, including relationships. So that we're basically nothing but, you know, small, helpless children who are just craving the next hit. And we've lost everything else, but we've gained this one salient process. And then, of course, recovery is the opposite of that, where we lose that one salient process and we acquire multiple other identities and functions we, as we recover. So unemployment should be seen in that context. It's part of the descent into chaos. It's part of the inability to meet role obligations, and it's part of the loss of social relationships. And recovery from substance use disorder is characterized, one of the biggest milestones is getting another job. What would you say to that then, Philippe? Absolutely. To me, unemployment equals time. And usually when we're employed and we have a lot to do during our day, we have less time to think about things and and ponder things. So when we're working, we're doing certain tasks. When we've got, when people are unemployed, they have more time to to ponder things, uh, more time to to pursue other Mm -hmm. activities. So one of the things I tell my patients is you've got to find or try and find something meaningful or some meaningful activity to try and do to occupy your time. It does not have to be paid work. Volunteer work is absolutely fine, but just try and find something to do with your time. And we can start small. It can be working in a community garden, volunteering at at the op shop, whatever you do, but that meaningful activity to try and, as you've mentioned, Fergal, reintegrate back into society and, and, all of us, I think, are searching for some aspect of meaning, something to fill that emptiness. And sometimes substances actually serve to fill that emptiness. So using your time for something productive, looking outside yourself, trying to help someone else is usually a strategy I try and utilize with my patients to try and make sure that that we can combat uh, the, the, the abundance of time and the lack of activity that there is to fill the time when one is unemployed. Um, is that is that a fair statement? 
The devil makes work for idle hands. You know, that's what my grandmother used to say. But I think I'd like to reflect on one of the points that you've made, that purposeful activity is protective against substance use disorder. It increases your resilience. It it allows you to have an identity. So, again, it doesn't have to be paid employment. Um, It can be any kind of activity that that you do that you find pleasurable or purposeful. It doesn't have to be pleasurable, but if you find meaning and purpose in it, well, that's that's a good thing. The other thing to think about is if you hate your job and you find that your job is not meaningful and not purposeful, well, that's actually a risk factor for substance use disorder, isn't it? You know, how many patients have you seen who basically, you know, work to basically escape for the weekends and going to take drugs to escape from how much they hate their work? Absolutely. That is not uncommon. Another Mm -hmm. thing that is... I guess, of concern, and I see it a lot in a lot of my patients, is is homelessness or lack of stable accommodation. And I, I find this a massive risk factor. And it is really uh, a sad in, in a country like Australia where we do have a lot of people who do not have access to, to stable accommodation. And it really is one of those big social determinants of health that is a risk factor for, for substance use. Would you, would you agree with that? Mm. Yeah, definitely. And more so, I would say that people who are homeless, medical services are are discriminatory against them. Because, for instance, one, one example, you know, we'll send you out an appointment letter. Well, if you're homeless, you don't have a fixed address. So how do you receive correspondence from a hospital if you don't have a fixed address? You know, and, and of course, you know, can you tell someone with a good going sub, substance use disorder, oh, well, you know, set up a P.O. box address so we can send posts to your P.O. box account and you'll, you'll have to pay maybe $50 a month for it. But don't worry, you know, it's better, it's cheaper than paying rent. That just doesn't happen. Absolutely. You know, so how do you get over that issue of actually communicating with patients? We usually use phone messaging so people can get text messages. Um, uh, so that's kind of with technology, yeah. I think we're, we're heading towards now. Yeah. Sometimes people have yeah. people that they get their mail from. But homelessness is, it's really difficult to counteract that, that significant disadvantage one has when one does not have that, that stable accommodation. Mm. Not only for getting in touch with uh, a patient, but also maintaining health and maintaining good health. It's really hard, say, to care for chronic wounds when you don't have a roof over your head, when you're moving, or heaven forbid you're sleeping rough. It's really hard to keep your wounds dry keep yourself warm and comfortable. So not only from a substance use disorder point of view, but from a general health point of view as well, it's, it's very hard to maintain optimal health when, when one does not have stable accommodation. What about relationships and other social harm, damaged I, relationships? I, unfortunately, with substance use disorders, broken relationships seem to be the hallmark of substance use disorders. Um, I think all of our patients could tell us story upon story about alienation from friends, families, other loved ones. And a lot of the time, unfortunately, when I see people um, in the emergency department or even in clinic, um, they're usually at their wits end. They're alone. Um, they've got no one to turn to. They have very little support, if any. And sometimes they're clinging to external uh, support services, sometimes on a very precarious basis as well. And the lack of support is not helpful from a, a a viewpoint of getting through the substance use disorder and leaning on other people for support, but also from a mental point of view, when you feel totally alone, you you already probably feel quite small because you have this substance use disorder. And the fact that you have no one to talk to or share the burden with is also 
not a brilliant position to be in. And I'm sure you've seen pretty much the same thing, Fergal. Mm, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you know, broken relationships, it progresses to social isolation and social isolation increases your risk of chronic physical illness. It increases your risk of heart attacks. It increases your risk of dementia. It increases your risk of depression. It increases your risk of suicide. You know, so, I mean, the, there are two main factors. A lack of meaningful, purposeful activity and a lack of validating relationships, I think that's the double whammy that really floors people. And unfortunately, people with substance use disorder suffer from both of those elements at the same time. And I can't overstate the mark that, you know, someone with a chaotic lifestyle as a result of substance use disorder is basically so vulnerable. They're a helpless child. And as you say, they're just so dependent on statutory services. So for anyone watching, don't underestimate the potential value of your therapeutic interaction with someone with a substance use disorder if they are homeless, if they do have a lack of social relationships. A small, kind world, word, a smile, a welcoming, a welcoming gesture, an act of kindness, these can all turn that person away. They could be the one critical incident that turns that patient away from substances and suicide to recovery because you just don't know. Absolutely. And I think as a society, we're kind of becoming more aware and recognizing the impact of loneliness. But I think we still have a long way yeah. to go to realize the true health harms of loneliness. So trying to be supportive is sure a nice thing to do, but the actual health benefits from decreasing someone's loneliness, I think will probably be more accentuated in the years to go when we really delve into loneliness and the health impacts associated with that. But it is one of those things that really negatively predicts someone's course during substance use disorder. If they're lonely and they've got no social supports, it's not a good picture and it really does impact how, how they go through treatment basically for substance use disorder. I think it should be regarded as a, as a kind of a unique psychological or psychiatric diagnosis, a comorbid diagnosis in and of itself, you know, apart from, you know, schizophrenia, depression, PTSD, ADHD, et cetera, et cetera. Loneliness should be highlighted and flagged just as, just as all of those other psychiatric illnesses are. You know, it, it really does need attention in and Absolutely. of itself. One of the things that yeah. is stereotypically associated with substance use disorders is um, acquisitive crime, and usually um, it's the acquisitive crime to obtain mm. um, drugs is, is, is the kind of the paradigm that's, that's usually used. Yeah. What, what's your view on the impact of acquisitive crime in substance use disorders and, and I guess the circle that sometimes occurs with acquisitive crime using to fund drugs and then vice versa, going down that kind of rabbit hole per se. Yeah, um, I think that it's really important to understand that acquisitive crime is a symptom of substance use disorder. So therefore, a punitive approach to acquisitive crime is just not going to work. People need to be treated for their substance use disorder to then reduce acquisitive crime. No, I mean... We're not, uh, we're not forensic specialists and we're not, uh, you know, uh, forensic scientists and we're not forensic sociologists. But my limited understanding of the role and the benefits of prison are that prison doesn't actually rehabilitate offenders. It's actually, I think there's, there's, I mean, I'm only speaking anecdotally from my, my chats with, with friends who are in those specialisms, but they basically say that 
Prison has two functions. It removes people from society who are considered to be a danger to society. And it teaches other people to become more, more uh, it teaches low-grade criminals to become high-grade criminals. It's, it's basically a university education in crime. So putting someone who's got a medical illness, who has got, who's got a dependency, who's going through withdrawals, who's lost their control, lost their ability to make good choices because they've got multiple withdrawal episodes in a day, putting that person into prison is not going to solve society's harms. It's not going to solve the, the issue with society. It's not, going to, it's not going to make them better. You need to actually treat this as a medical issue. And I think, <laughs> I think we should all be looking at legalizing drug use or at least decriminalizing drug use. You know, I mean, you know, the, the greatest experiment for, uh, you know, criminalizing substance use was the American prohibition movement. I mean, that was a disaster. Absolutely. And I think we need what to be a bit think? more sophisticated in our thinking about drugs and also the symptoms of drug use. Like you mentioned, Fergal, um, with incarcerating people for using acquisitive crime to fun, fund substance use. It, I, it, it beggars belief in some respects and it really doesn't assist the situation. And you're also dealing with quite traumatised people and you're putting them in a more traumatising situation, stripping away all power. So you're probably putting people with substance use disorder in the worst possible place where they're probably not going to get adequate treatment for substance use disorder, where they're going to be stigmatised even more. No after for being in prison and the chances of recovery just decrease so like you um i think my thinking's taken an an evolution over time and i'm certainly in the camp of of decriminalization um of um of uh, drugs because using the justice system to try and legislate a medical condition it it I don't think it works, and I think we're end we're ending up in a no. situation where people are getting worse and worse outcomes. Where we could potentially have a more beneficial system for both the individual and society as a whole. Because putting people in jail for substance use disorder takes them out of society, whereas if we're treating the substance use disorder, keeping people in society, we have a chance of reintegrating people back into society. People getting jobs, paying taxes. Mm. Providing support mm-hmm. to society, providing support yeah. to society. So I think the flow-ons from mm-hmm. a more sophisticated, nuanced dis- discussion about this should be had, and I think jail and incarceration really should be taken out of the picture as well. So I, I do agree with you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I speak as one who's got a lot of experience actually managing uh, the healthcare needs of patients in the criminal justice system, both in prison and outside prison. And one of my overriding experiences was this, 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 this lack of funding for prisoner substance use replacement therapy. Um, I think it's, it's changing a little bit. So I think, you know, certainly in Australia and in the United Kingdom, it's fairly easy to get methadone now, but it's very difficult to get buprenorphine in prison. And it's even more difficult to get long acting injectable buprenorphine in prison. So my, you know, the, the issue is, you know, these are treatments that are freely available in both the United Kingdom and Australia. Yet for those who have perhaps the most severe substance use disorder, it's not available or it's not as easily as available. And I think that's a, that's a shame. 
Um, you know, but if you look at the figures, you know, if you if you speak to you know um, the directors of prison services, they'll all say, oh, you know, opioid replacement therapy is available in prisons. But they are being, at the very least, disingenuous when they say that because it's the the buprenorphine and long-acting injectable buprenorphine is not as available in prison as it is in the on the outside. And certainly, when I used to work in prisons, we had caps on the number of patients that we could actually provide methadone for. So, you know, it's it, it's it's just. I won't even go into needle exchanges in prison, Fergal, or the access to to sterile injecting equipment as well, because I think that's going. <laughs> or for that matter, that, or for that matter, the treatment mm. of hepatitis C uh, in prison. Yes, you know? uh, we'll we'll move on to to, mm. to to safer territory in a second. <laughs> okay. Substance use disorder um, and I guess the social issues surrounding substance use disorder can tend to lead to violent um, violence and exposure to a lot of violence. And in particular, we could be talking about domestic violence in, 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 in social situations. How yeah. do you manage domestic violence? Because I've certainly seen a lot of uh, very complicated domestic violence situations and they're always quite fraught and very complicated do you have any approaches or techniques um i think it's first of all important to recognize that that if you're living with some if you are someone with a substance use disorder or you're living with someone with a substance use disorder there is a vulnerability to domestic violence there either as a perpetrator or as a victim so so when when we think about um you know episodic intoxication and disinhibition that's where it basically comes from I read a statistic that something like you've got to have for a victim of domestic violence to actually make a complaint to the police, they have to have, they, on average, they go through about 28 episodes of domestic violence before they actually make that, make that um, first uh, complaint to police. And secondly, um, you know, when we, when we look at retrospective analyses of, of death as a result of domestic violence, one of the, you know, it's very tempting to say, oh, you've got to leave the person. But it's really important to understand that the highest risk of death is actually for the three months after someone has left uh, an abusive relationship. And when you look back at retrospective um, deaths uh, due to partner violence or ex-partner violence, rather, there are a couple of traits that are really, really obvious. And that's basically the, the antisocial traits and also the narcissistic traits that are of, that are present on the the perpetrator so when these people see the, their their victims or their their ex-partners what they actually see are people whom they should possess because if i can't have you then no one else can or if i can't have the kids no one else can and that's where you start getting these high risk situations when victims leave with the kids and you know that's when people, that's when uh, victims and children get get killed, and we've seen that. You know, and, and there's been some horrific cases uh, all over Australia. So how do I deal with it? Well, first of all, I I don't automatically encourage victims to leave immediately. There, there, it has to be a staged and has to be a managed process. I put them in contact with the appropriate domestic violence services, and I support them through the episodes, and I support them to actually make a make a complaint knowing full well that when they start making the complaint that violence is potentially going to get worse before it gets better. Absolutely. And I think... What do you do? I do pretty much a similar kind of approach. I try and support the patient. And I think it 
our role as doctors is, is support and also not to have too much expectation as in this is what I think you should do. Therefore, you should do yeah. this, this, this and this and support yeah. the patient no matter what decision they make. Link them in with appropriate mm. services and make yeah. any mandatory reports or statutory reports that I'm obliged to do. But also yeah. there's many different types of domestic violence and one that I've seen particularly in substance use disorder is using the substance as a form of coercive control, sometimes um, either rationalizing access to drugs, injecting the drug into a partner, or using the substance as a form of um, a power play basically as well, sometimes even forcing the partner to do activities or acts that they're not comfortable with, be it sex work or, or um, fill in the blank here. So... Yeah. substances themselves can be used as a tool to keep carrying on domestic violence as well. And that's something that we should ask yeah. for as well. Yeah. And I suppose, yeah, you've actually made, you've made some really valid points there. Don't forget about mandatory reporting. And we can come on to children in a second. Um, but yeah, the substance use can be a tool and a web can be weaponized. That's so true. So Fergal, I guess coming off the last topic of domestic violence, the other thing that can be linked in with domestic violence is is the safety of children. Uh, what's your approach to mandatory reporting in 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 these situations? Well, I think it's important to understand that a there is such a thing as mandatory reporting, and every state's got its own legislation. The first thing I do is to actually phone my local social services uh, and my, my connection there. So it's really important if you're going to work in this area to actually have appropriate networks, including social services, to actually then understand exactly what your what your um, mandatory reporting requirements are. Because remember, it's not just about um, child abuse or child neglect. You've also got uh, mandatory reporting that applies to, for instance, impaired clinicians. So, you know, you, you've got to be aware of the potential range of situations that you have to engage in mandatory reporting. So, you know, it's always better to have this discussion with a supportive network of colleagues who are, who understand the, the precise legal frameworks. And in, in my experience, it's perfectly reasonable to discuss a case with someone before you actually make that report, that mandatory report to that person, because they'll be able to, you'll be able to tell them the case the ins and outs, and then they'll ask you, well, you know, based on what I've told you, based on what you've told me, do you feel that this is a mandatory report? Would you like to go further with this? And you can make that judgment at the time. So it's important to be aware of the existence of mandatory reporting, both for children and also for certain protected professions. And always, always, always talk to colleagues, talk to your network. You know, you cannot, you cannot provide a substance use disorder service in isolation. And this is a perfect example of that, why that is the case. Absolutely. And something that I've recently taken as part of my own practice is actually contacting my medical defense organization as well. So I will sometimes run yeah. a scenario and usually they do have hotlines for this as well. And you can do it in clinic hours also. And just say, I'm thinking that this might meet mandatory reporting criteria. Uh, I'm not that experienced sometimes with this, or there's a bit of a grayness in it. And I'm not quite sure if it meets criteria. Mm. I'm in Victoria is this appropriate or not? And they'll usually give you the lawyer answer, which in this kind of situation is exactly the answer that you want. So that's something yeah, I started doing yeah. as well. Yeah. So Fergal, uh, the other thing that I think we've also kind of touched on 
briefly as well is the and looking at it from a governmental position and and the social harms related to substance use disorder we've touched on the loss of tax revenue but also i guess the cost to the healthcare system and the cost to the criminal justice of of substance use disorders as well but i guess there's also the the cost to the economy as a whole and if we were looking at this as i guess economists what could you say about some of these costs that i've that i've mentioned i think if you forget everything else there is no more cost-effective intervention than opioid replacement therapy for substance use disorder, for opioid use disorder. When you, when you factor in the, the, the fact that someone with, with a substance use disorder is unable to work, therefore doesn't pay tax, but then also, from purely from an economic point of view, requires services, both from treatment services and from criminal justice services. So there's a double whammy. And sorry, also is potentially absent from work. So again, there's another source of loss of revenue. I mean, you know, there are various figures of bind, but, you know, there's a, there's a key figure in my head that this, this data is, you know, 15 years old now, but it was estimated that $2.5 billion was lost to the Australian economy in 2005 as a result of illicit drug use. Now, that's out of date now, but then we can move on to various other estimates, in particular of the, the cost of incarceration. So, in Victoria, the cost of incarceration uh, is per, per individual per year is, is over $100,000. How much does the, how much does it cost to treat someone in Victoria for opioid use disorder? Less, about two and a half to $3,000. So, you know, that's why, you know, you don't ever hear a politician say, we're going to lock these patients up and throw away the key. We don't ever hear politicians say that because the minute they start talking like that, you know, a bean counter comes up behind them, taps them on the shoulder and says, you're going to bankrupt the state economy if you do that. Another way of thinking about uh, the, benefit, the, the, the social harms is to actually juxtapose, juxtapose the, the financial benefit of interventions. What would you say about the, the benefits of intervening in substance use disorder? Well, the, no. the, the benefits from intervening in substance use disorder, I think we've talked about in the, in the last three episodes, where basically you've got the the physical, uh, the emotional, and the financial benefits for both society and the patient at, at large. So you are potentially saving someone's life as well as saving society a yeah. large sum of money. So yes, there's definitely the, the financial impetus as well as the moral and ethical impetus mm. as well. Yeah. So, I mean, I've heard figures that, you know, certainly for needle syringe programs, that for every dollar spent on a needle syringe program, you get $28, $29 back in terms of savings to the economy, savings to healthcare costs and savings to criminal justice costs. NIDA in the States put out data that suggested that there was, for every dollar spent on substance use services, $4 were saved to healthcare costs. And, up, and then on top of that, and an additional three dollars were saved to criminal justice costs. So the overall benefit was a one to seven. And I think that's that's that data is I think also fairly transferable to uh, Australia. So it's really important to understand that not only is is the economic argument for uh, the impact of substance use disorder on the economy there, but also the impact of treatment is there as well. And really, if you're a politician, if you're a sociologist, if you're an economist treating substance use disorder rather than uh, putting someone to prison or jail is actually so much more cost effective. Absolutely, Fergal. And I think that's an excellent summary for this episode that we've had talking about the social harms uh, associated and the social comorbidity associated with substance use disorder. So thank you all for your attention and company again for another episode of Cracking Addiction. 
and bye for now. Thank you.